hello. Ah, look who calls. Let him have it, Chris! Let him have it, Chris. 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 There's a button and a switch for everything. What's that? You're listening to Aerial View worldwide on the internet. No tricks now, Chris. Terrible's gonna happen. So how y'all doing, all right? How much you can do for this? Come on, you know better than that. How y'all doing, all right? This is a hot dog. It's 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 I stayed in New Jersey and I don't care who you are. Chris, you get out of school. Let's talk. I'm sick of talking. I know how to talk to people. I've got this man go on here and deliver a coded message. You're out of your mind. I'm not out of my mind. Oh, come on. Now, we're going to listen to what he said on the air. Because all we're dealing with here, after all,
Ah, uh, the other potential name for this show. Mutiny of Preverts. But I didn't use it. This program is called Aerial View. And the more I say Aerial View, the longer I say it. I've been saying it since 1989, the more I think to myself, why didn't I choose another name for this program? I mean, back then I thought I was being clever because uh, it was on a radio station and the other word for antenna is aerial. And then I thought I had a lot of viewpoints, hence aerial fucking view. But then that loathsome show, uh, The View, came along and I just thought, shit. I thought, shit. It's too late now. Too late to turn back now. Time is a flat circle, as they say. And it moves on whether you want it to or not. That's just the way things work. And every once in a while, you're confronted with your past. And I don't know about you, but me, Chris T, here on thehoundnyc.com, I got a lot of past. And uh, part of my past included telemarketing. And I always say that telemarketing was the beginning of my radio career for what it was, for what it turned out to be my radio career. And without uh, telemarketing, I don't know if I would have been any good at talking to a wide range of people. And I don't mean people. I mean strangers. Talking to a wide range of strangers. And so it, that's what trained me to, to talk to a lot of, lot of people. And, and telemarketing was a job that if you had a decent voice, you can do. It didn't take uh, a lot of talent 
as long as you could speak and be understood didn't have much of an accent and I, and I think the other thing that telemarketing did for me was it scrubbed away my Long Island accent although I, I, I wish I had recordings of me back then and uh, I wish I could hear what I sounded like when I called these people and the first telemarketing job I got was for this company that was owned by a guy who was the son of a guy who was a good friend of my mother's. Somebody my mother had gone to Amityville High School with. The Cromarty family. And the Cromarty family became famous for purchasing the Amityville Horror House after the Lutzes, the people who wrote the book Amityville Horror, fled this prominent local family, the Cromerties, bought the place. And I know you're going to get angry at me when I reveal this, but I was invited to a Halloween party there, and I did not go. And they all laughed at me because it was around the time the film came out, The Amityville Horror. It came out in 1979. So I'm either still in high school or I'm just out of high school. And they started ribbing me about ghosts. What are you afraid of ghosts? And I was like, no, I mean, six people were, were murdered there. Was it six or seven? I forget now, but you know the story. Ronald DeFeo, who passed away not that long ago, murdered his entire family in their sleep to cover up the theft of $10,000 that his father kept in a lockbox beneath the floorboards in this closet. And why did Ronald DeFeo want... The $10,000, why did he feel he needed to murder his family to cover up the theft? Well, he was a fucking junkie. And the strangest thing that I've ever seen is they took the story of a pathetic junkie and they uh, larded it with all kinds of Native American hoo-ha and g -g -g ghosts and they made a cottage industry out of it. That thing is still ringing up sales all over the world. They keep putting out more and more. I think there was even a th Amityville Horror 3D. And meanwhile, no one, and I mean no one, with all of the streaming services out there, with HBO, which is now Max, which is where the documentary Telemarketers dropped that uh, I'm going to talk about with Keith Hartel in just a moment, and with uh, Hulu and Paramount and... Whatever the fuck else you have, nobody, nobody has thought to tell the real Amityville horror story, the story of the DeFeo family and the son who was a junkie and murdered his entire family, because it's a compelling story. And if you ever manage to track down a book called High Hopes, it's uh, the only book that I know of that was written about the trial of Ronald DeFeo by the prosecutor and delves into exactly what happened on that night in November of, what was it, 1973, 74? I, I don't want to start looking things up while I'm trying to do an aerial view here, so I'm not going to. But I'm going to remind you, this is the HoundNYC.com. And uh, on Sundays, you can hear Hound Howls at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Crashing the Party, the doo-wop chop shop of the air with Mark and Miriam. 
And uh, let's welcome in our special guest, Keith Hartell, who has been on this program many times, but I'll still try to do some kind of introduction. I, I met Keith, oh my God, a long time ago, long time ago, uh, probably playing punk rock and hardcore music. And uh, Keith has been in many, many bands. Uh, did a stint in Adrenaline OD when uh, Jack Steeples was unavailable. And uh, what was it, Motel Shootout? Was that the other band? That was a band that I was in. That was a band that you were in. And Inger Laurie uh, played with Inger Laurie for a while? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, we went under that name with her for a while, yes. Right. And I, I think you came close to some kind of record contract uh, slash big fucking deal. And then I heard a story about what she did on a record executive's desk. I, I don't know. It could be apocryphal, but it might be true. The funny, the funny thing is, is I was with her before she was, you know, the record executive thing was after she was on uh, Geffen. So I played with her before that and quit because, you know, she was the kind of person who piss on your desk, you know, like she was rough. <laughs> um, she had her career with the nymphs and then when she came back to new jersey i got involved with her again and uh you know yeah she get she get a thing she she, she blow stuff up you know get like something like happening right Uh, fear of success it sounds like what's that fear of success sounds like one of those fear of success deals it but yeah but but in the in the weirdest way of just being able to get like everything to click into place like all the connections and stuff and just like you know, blow it up, blow it, it blow the it hell up. up. And speaking of blowing it up, yes. In my experience, a lot of people. A lot of them, when I was working in telemarketing. Yes. Blew up stuff. No, it was like that was one of the types. That was one of the types. Like you had the um, the middle aged guys. Like a lot of them were who the managers were. They'd be like these cool guys. That seemed very professional, and but their backstory was always that they blowed up their own life. And yeah, so they were and, like, man, being the you know being the friendly manager at the telemarketing uh, job. Yeah, they ended up down at the old telemarketing factory, and in this case, the telemarketing factory in the three-part documentary series Telemarketers. Now, I mean, I don't know whether to call it an HBO original documentary, a Max, who the fuck knows? It doesn't matter. It's on max but they they refer to it as an hbo original so it may be one of those projects that uh, predated the switch to max but the focus is a telemarketing company called cdg in new jersey and this might be the most new jersey documentary i've ever seen by the way uh what did cdg stand for keith do you remember absolutely and i'm glad you asked yes because this is the um, like how cynical the people are. Like I mean, you know, because it, it it goes into how how you know crooks they are or whatever or rip off artists. But like the cynicism, they were called civic it, civic development group. And you'd ask them like, what do you mean by that? They'd be like, you know, we uh, develop uh, civically. Like we develop uh, the Honda Civic. We developed that. That was us. Like it was a joke. Like if someone made a joke of trying to make up a name that sounds official and real, that's what they did. Like they just tried to, and they called CDGs. But but also one of those names that's so anodyne, it could mean absolutely anything. Like you you could you'd be scratching your head for days trying to figure out what Civic Development Group does. What do they do? I don't know what that is. What do they do? 
you just blank out. It sounds official. It sounds important. Right. It sounds real, you know? <laughs> but, but like all these boiler rooms, and, and my first telemarketing job, as I was saying, is working for this son of the Cromartys, part of the Cromarty family, the people who bought 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, uh, where Ronald DeFeo on November 13th, 1974, murdered his entire family. And uh, it was then uh, the Lutzes moved in a year later, supposedly had supernatural experiences, fled the house in fear and terror for their lives. And then Jay Anson wrote a book about it called The Amityville Horror. And it became a big deal. But I was I was working for these people and it was Halloween and it might have been 1980, 81, somewhere around there, 82. You know, I'm in the band, The Nihilistics. By the way, go to nihilisticbook.com, sign up for uh, my newsletter, get the Substack and the podcasts. Podcasts on Monday, the poster on Friday. And I get invited to a Halloween party at this house, and I turn them down, and, and they just roundly mocked me because they thought I was I was a scaredy cat. And they said, no, I, I, six people were murdered in that house. I don't want to go in there. I mean, I, I mean, I know true crime is a thing now, but but back then I was like, that's kind of that's kind of terrible, right? I mean, the guy mur- junkie murdered six members of his family. I don't want to be part of that. But I actually I read the book actually. I, yeah. I remember very clearly. It was a big deal. Yeah, the the book Amityville Horror, or the book High Hopes. That was the, the true. Oh, story. I read the book Amityville Horror yeah. that, that the movie was based on. Yeah, if I. Uh, if I remember, I'll loan you my copy of High Hopes, but under pain of death, it would have to be returned to me because they're very hard to find. And it's never been reprinted, but it's the true story of what happened there, and I, and I wish somebody would, would do that, put that on TV. Anyway, I'm working for these people, and somehow I get this job, and I don't remember how, but what our thing was uh, there were there was a police organization, and I forget if it was the PBA, but... The ones I remember was the 1st Marine Division and the Vietnam Veterans of America. And I would make calls for all these organizations. And there was a script, and you would sit at a desk, and you and they would, you would cold call these contacts. They were either Dun & Bradstreet. Do you remember Dun & Bradstreet cards? Did you ever see sort. those? Yeah. Dun & Bradstreet was a company where you can go and you can get leads and names right. of businesses, right, and names of individuals or whatever – and and sometimes we would plain old call out of the telephone book, and we would introduce ourselves. Hey, and I I think I I was already using a nom de plume. I don't think I was t- telling them my actual name because no one can pronounce it and no one can spell it. And I might have at that point been like Taylor, Chris Taylor, or something that started with a T. And there was a pitch, there was a script, and you would pitch these people and try to get them to take out an ad in a yearbook quote-unquote, that would feature their business or them saying something about the 1st Marine Division or the Vietnam Vets. And it was, at the time, it was a job. That's all I knew is they paid me, and I did this job, and I was fairly good at it. Um, And it's, it's, who knows how much money the Vietnam Veterans of America got, what what their cut was, or the 1st Marine Division. And one time I even went and stood in a mall, a local mall, with a big water bottle, raising money, like from passersby, for the Vietnam Veterans of America. And I wore my camouflage pants, and I wore my military jacket, and, and, and guys would ask me, are you a, a Vietnam vet? And I'm like, it's 1980, 81, 
I'm 22 <laughs> years old. How is it possible I'm a Vietnam vet? I mean, and I, I, I think if I, it was nowadays, Keith, I'd be arrested for stolen valor. Ooh. Yeah, that's not cool. So let's talk about CDG and your experience there and what, did, what, and what you did for these people. Okay. Um, well, first of all, what's strange is, um, you know Jim Pash, who had Hoboken Vintage and before that Outlaw Guitar? I do. And then he was like, uh, Skip, he was like, I meant, I met him through Skip. So I already knew, um, one of the, cause there was the two pairs of brothers that were the founders of the organization. So, and those were Jim's brothers. He had like four brothers and, um, two of them were these like evil twins that would do schemes. And, um, it, one brother was more like the head of the whole thing, and then the other brother was still pursuing being a rock star. He ended up going into Christian rock, as they show in the documentary, but and he ran an office. Um, and but but you know, so I went there and worked, and you would have a computer monitor in front of you, which was a very new thing, generating calls. You have a headset, and you read a script to the people. Um, there's a script, but you know. Um, Everyone's got their own touches and, you know, um, little bits they do and stuff. Um, some of the language in that documentary I, I forgot about, like saying stuff like, uh, so we'll, we'll put you down for the 25, but, but hey, you win the lottery, you'll send back a thousand, right? <laughs> like, I forgot that whole way of thinking, of talking to people. Right. And when and, and these are not the people I work with. Well, like, I'm seeing the lingo and this attitude that has got to be, like, 10 years or so after I worked there. It's it's the same, like, the, the same personality types, the same, you know, sociological types. Um, incredible. Patrick J. Pespis is sort of the star of this thing. Yeah. He's the guy that um, now calling himself a uh, freelance journalist. Um, but his journey begins as uh, talk about junkies. I mean, the guy is abusing heroin. He's mm. taking all kinds of stuff. And his dream is to expose these people and, and to someday testify in front of Congress. And I'm not going to spoil it uh, for, for you if you want to watch the yeah, program. Actually, I will watch after this now. Uh, but it's it's really kind of spectacular to see what happens because – they start shooting footage with the idea that we, this place is such a bizarre place to work that we have to document this. People are yeah. not going to believe what goes on here in this place. And so they start with a, one of the, you know, old video cameras back in the day, video cameras and shooting video of people just acting the fool. And I mean, it's kind of fascinating to watch because you get to see what it was like and how these people operated and what they did and just how they were squeezing the last dollars out of people to uh, line the pockets of these guys who own the company and to make them very, very, very wealthy. Meanwhile, they're getting God knows what. I mean, they're not even getting commission. They're getting a salary. Were you, do you remember? Actually, that was an advantage, actually. Mm-hmm. Because um, that was a big breakthrough that normally on a job like that, um, any kind of fundraising job, you have like a very low hourly, like minimum wage or close, you know, adjacent. And then, you know, you get commissions. So with CDG, with this new like fast call generating thing, you were getting pledges and then you were getting judged on pledges and returns and they had an adjustable hourly rate. 
Like, so I'm sure that they weren't like, you know, losing to the employees with this deal, but, but they, when they, they could offer you like, you know, 10, be reasonably good and just get a solid $10 an hour was like kind of a big deal in the nineties. You know what I mean? Like, um, for a part-time job with no skills, like no, you know, just ability to talk on the phone. It could, yeah. it could be any, that was what thing about, that's why that's that weird mix of personalities. Like any kind of a person might be just good at talking on the phone. So were you good at it? I mean, how long did you work there? I was, I was not great at it. I was, I was all right. Like I was good. Like I was, was solid, but, um, I worked there maybe like a year or something, but I did a lot of like, um, I, I, I worked for New Jersey, um, the environmental federation and J E F and did fundraising there before I did the evil, you know, CDG. And then when I lived in LA, I did like the, you know, you ever hear the toner phoners? No. Oh, oh, they would sell you toner cartridges for your, uh, yeah. for your laser printer. Yeah. Yes. And they, yeah. they would try to sell. Yeah. I did that. Bullshit. <laughs> and that's shit. like, you're, you're trying to like trick people. You're just trying to straight up, like get a new person that's new in the office. Doesn't know orders it at this inflated rate. But, um, yeah. So I did a lot of this garbage, like all these, like, yeah, only the NJEF was kind of like you, you could really live with yourself. But even that, it had the funny thing with the percentages where they have this pie chart. And so if someone asks you, like, how does the money get divided up? And there's all these different categories, but it still is like 80 percent really the organization itself still. Right. I, I think uh, in, in the documentary telemarketers, it's it's never more than 10 percent that any of these charitable, quote unquote, charitable organizations ever get. And yeah. uh, uh, I mean, so think about that. Think about just how ridiculous a skew that is. But um, but the other guy that was involved in the documentary, Sam Lipman Stern, is the one that actually began filming at CDG until they told him he couldn't film anymore. But he he really just wanted to document again these coworkers of his and not knowing where this was all going to lead but eventually they the two of them pat and sam say to each other can you imagine how america would react if they knew what went on here and uh and that was the impetus for putting together this this documentary which i mean took 20 years it's quite a long gestation to to unveil uh unveil the the dark side of the telemarketing industry and when did you realize you were sort of involved in a whole bunch of scams oh i mean i had done the la toner scam before that like that's the lowest i mean as far as just like straight up scam like like no service at all um but you know you know and then also i'd worked at the environmental federation where it was really kind of felt shockingly low what percentage actually went to do anything other than keep the organization going you, you know what I mean? Like, like, but you feel like, okay, but I'm educating people, you know, I'm politicizing people, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm part of the good team. Um, but it is sort of like when you realize that, you know, raising money for the environment is, is pretty fake. Yeah. <laughs> then, then it's just like, then, okay, I want to work at the place to just give me $10 an hour. I can't handle all the heavy feelings. The heavy feelings of duping people, the, the guilt, you mean, of, uh, well, pressure to be solid, to yeah. perform. Yeah, like it was way more like as far as the you know pressure to be consistent. Like that's you know, it's it, it if you're almost like because I was like kind of almost very good, but like 
you know, never, never cracked the code, like whatever it is that, and, and, and it's funny cause there was the exact same hierarchical, which callers lie where system, like, you know, you, you had like an elite callers, then you had like the solid, you know, kind of upper echelon. Then you had people that were just allowed to continue to the work there. <laughs> And I think that's it. I think that's all the four different kinds of callers there were at both places. I got to say, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I was pretty damn good at it. I'm, I was pretty, I'm not I was, surprised. I was pretty good at getting money out of people, and, and I was pretty good. My telemarketing career continued even after the whole Vietnam Veterans of America and First Marine Division and stuff. I had a number of telemarketing jobs, and the next one was a boiler room where we – sold chemicals over the phone and a lot of Zep chemicals. If you know the brand Zep and we would call these people, these guys who were superintendents of buildings, for instance, and they would get a fishing rod. They would get a, uh, some kind of three day vacation in Florida, some kind of bogus thing. And really what you were trying to do is sell them overpriced chemicals. And, I mean, that was one of the stranger jobs I ever had. It, it was really like um, you felt like every day the police were going to bust in. The, the FBI was going to show up and shut you down because uh, maybe you could argue that the 1st Marine Division and the Vietnam Vets of America were getting something out of what was going on. They were getting some money. Um, these people were just getting plain old ripped off yes we would mail them product you would send them their product but it was so overpriced it was just remarkable and and i did that for a long time and i still remember the three martini lunches me and this guy that worked there there was a place nearby do you remember the tabletop version of uh ms pac-man you sit at this table and and you we would go get our liquid lunch we would sit at this place and play Ms. Pac-Man for an hour and down like three martinis and then go back to work and, and do it some more. And I, I mean, I'm just I'm just glad I got the hell out of that because I actually I didn't get out of that for a long time. When I moved to New Jersey, I ended up doing telemarketing. My first job was telemarketing, but it was inbound telemarketing. So people calling you, you're, you're not calling them. They're calling you for customer service or whatever the Lillian Vernon catalog um, that kind of crap before there was the internet, people would call and place orders from a catalog. So I did, I did a lot of that. Then I ended up at paper direct speaking of toner phoners selling paper over the phone. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't until I kind of got into my radio career, started doing radio that I got the hell out of telemarketing. I mean, I might still be in telemarketing, uh, if not for getting involved in radio in 1986 so um so do you did you uh you saw two installments of telemarketers you haven't seen the third you don't know how it uh it uh turns out i take it yes i do not you do not know how it turned out okay so i won't spoil it for you i don't want to get into it but it's it's pretty it's pretty upsetting and disturbing to see how many doors they knock on and how many times they're turned away when they're telling a very simple story, namely that all these police organizations are in on the scam. They fully know what's going on. They fully know how we're raising money for them and they're okay with it as long as they get their yeah. cut. Yeah. Yeah. And well, see, I, I thought it was worse. 
I mean, I, I don't remember, you know, between knowing, like, cause I knew the brothers and I knew the guys and, and I, the managers were like best friends with these guys. Like, so I knew all the behind the scenes people. What I remember hearing was, I thought it was less than 10% um, originally, and it might've been, but it was, what I heard was they'll cut out like a $5,000 check to a local chapter of a fraternal order of police and just say, if we give you $5,000, can we fundraise you for a month? Here's five that, you know, cash up front and like take it or leave it. Like right. that was kind of the deal as I recall it. And they were always like, um, they were always one step ahead of the law. There was always some new thing. Like there's always a change in the script or something. You know, it was one of those things. They were always making little adjustments. So I, I figured that at some point they must have had to, there must have been actually made to be a law that it had to be 10% because otherwise, you know, um, yeah. I thought it was less. And, uh, you know, you, you can see the mentality, like you wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's, that's brought out in the documentary. It is. But the, the part that is really tough to watch is to see how far they get and they they just hit a brick wall they they because it's the police nobody really wants to get involved nobody really wants to look into what's going on because oh so it gets michael morish in the third chapter is that what you're telling uh, me uh he's even name checked as a matter of fact he's name checked right. and yeah, I, right. yeah. I i'm a real admirer of this patrick j pespis guy because when he finally gets his sit down with the big congressional bigwig, uh, mm -hmm. he's applying all those things he learned as a telemarketer. You know, he's handling every objection. He's getting past every no. And it's kind of amazing to watch that th this this training ground that this guy has been in all these years has prepared him exactly for this moment. And he's going toe to toe with a senator and he's he's besting the senator. And again, it's very hard to talk about this without spoiling it for anybody who hasn't seen it. But um, I will just say that I was very proud of this guy and, and proud of the state of New Jersey as well, because it's like a very again, it's a very New Jersey story. This is the kind of story that um, only folks who <laughs> came from here uh could could sort of carry out could sort of live out i don't know why that is because oh, i don't know, you know i something? mean what do you have a theory as to why it's new jersey dudes who decided I, to fuck these people yeah, it is. Not, it's, yeah. Well, it's a criminal it's a it's a legit like a for real criminal men mentality and what i remember was like there was always some kind of thing that was, you know, there was the law is always on their on their ass. But they were at the same time, they just started opening up offices in the south and they were just doing even better. And and the cities loved them for like employing the undesirable elements and stuff. You know what I mean? They were giving yeah, these motherfuckers yeah. key to the city right. in the south while they were being chased out of uh, the northeast. Wow. Wow. So they just switched their their base of operations. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so hilarious. And and the one brother, like the brother with the Christian rock band, that was an interesting guy. Like that was a dude that quit drinking because he was, you know, psychotic. I mean, you know, had he had judged himself an alcoholic that had to stop drinking because he was psychotic. So he went like um, born again and Xanax. And then he just he was really born again, but he just stayed like really like cynical and evil. And you, way, wait, you, so you, you did you know this guy? 
Oh, totally. The one, well, one, uh, one brother, the Christian rock brother. Yeah, absolutely. And Scott, I knew the, the twin brothers definitely knew them. What was the name of the Christian rock brother? Now I want to hear some of the Christian rock. Steve Pash. And what he used to do is his first thing before he went like full born again is he had this weird competitiveness with Jim, his brother, with the guitar store. Yeah. So you've probably seen this at some point. Like he just used to plaster like Route 18 with with signs that say we buy guitars. Oh, yeah. Oh, I had. To, I did see that. <laughs> that, was, that oh, that my was, gosh. Like, he just was doing that while he was running the telemarketing office. And then he became like, you know, some kind of like, or, you know, minister or reverend or some shit like he. But but like so then we go on the road with his like Catholic rock band, Christian rock band. He's going like, I'm a minister visiting a local church. Uh, we are looking for donations, things like, you know, guitars. If you have any laying around in your attic. But are like, you are you kidding me? So he was using the Christian <laughs> Rock, give me your guitar scam. I gotta try that. He was just like, it was like that's what like. I mean that that's what I mean. But see, and the thing is too about this guy's personality, the archetypal like sociopath, like glib, charming, like this guy. You know, if he was talking to you. There was just always this tone of like everyone else in the world is just an asshole except you and me, you know? right? Like yeah, it's very conspiratorial, very and very fucking really funny. Um, and like you know what the thing is like you know how they talk about like um asking old ladies for money, yeah, like that's the cliche of it. And then one time he just goes like he said this thing off. Like one time he goes there there is. There is nothing like there is nothing like a promise from a little old lady. There is nothing a promise. Oh my god! Little old lady is very special. There is nothing, and he said it in that like cynical way that he knew it was fucking funny, but he also like like was kind of saying like this business is built on the promises of little old ladies of taking them for their you know their social security money. Absolutely. Did you ever hear his band or go see them or anything? Uh, oh, um, well, yeah, because, they, yeah, I, I got they gave me the CD. Like, they made a CD, and he gave me the CD. One of the other guys that was, like, a manager there. It was also, I mean, they were, like, um, the Pash is kind of, like, um, they, they, like, whether it's Jim or the other brothers, and there was overlap in Jim. The greatest American rock and roll band in history. That's not them, by the way. I'm. I got to sit through this ad in order to be able to uh, sit oh. through the ad for the final Aerosmith tour to hear this crap. Three crosses. Here you go. I didn't mean to interrupt you, by the way. This is Steve Pash, I guess, on guitar. Stolen guitar. Stolen no, from a little Anthony lady. Cryzan on the guitar. Who's on the guitar? Anthony Cryzan. His thing that he's most famous for is he um, he was the guy that joined the Spin Doctors after the guitar player on the first album quit. So he was like in the Spin Doctors when they were really big, but he wasn't on the album that was big. And you know why that guy? Do you know why that guy quit the Spin Doctors? By the way, do you know why that original guitarist quit the Spin Doctors? I don't don't know why. Do you know why? I do. He realized he was in the Spin Doctors. This is this is three crosses. Oh my God! This is worse than I thought it would be. God painted better than Michelangelo. Oh, and Picasso. 
He had a band with this guy, Anthony Kreisan, that kind of had a deal with Epic that fell through or whatever. Why do you know all this Frank shit? Jesus Christ, I, I got the right person on the phone. I, I'm not saying Jesus Christ because that was a Christian band, by the way. Why do you know all this shit? Huh? Why, why do you know all of this? I'm just... <laughs> Fascinated that you know all this stuff. I was in the I was in the circles. I was close. Oh, yeah. I was close to the past family. Yeah, you skip. You had full immersion, didn't you? Boy, you yeah, knew well, a lot of scumbags. Did you ever really sit down and think about all the scumbags you knew? I mean, I don't. Think I, I, just think, to... I just think it was friends. Friends. <laughs> They're scumbags. They're scumbags. So, um, all right. So, CDG, how did you, what was your exit from CDG? Did they can your ass or did you move on to uh, brighter prospects? I forced them to fire me so that I could collect unemployment. How did you do that? That's that's a good move. I have done that, by the way. That is a good then, move. But how did you do it? Do it. <laughs> how, did, how did you, did you just be really disagreeable to the point where they couldn't? employ you any longer what'd you do well there was always a thing i mean you are supposed to be making a minimum a minimal amount of success on, on your phone calls you know oh, what I mean? okay you just uh, professor, qu- professor you did no. the quiet quitting before it was called that yeah it was, you have to they, they know like they know you're doing it like <laughs> it's like it's it's i remember because i was having this like when it was getting really close and i wanted to be fired and i said how like there was these kind of the, the this, these cool older middle-aged alcoholics that like were there because they blew up their life and they would be like the like robert duvall in colors kind of guy like and, and yeah. this one guy's like just going like uh you got joe, keith you're getting so mad at you man you can't you, you don't want to get so mad at you. What do you want to be fired? And then I was kind of like, you know, I kind of was like, and they just goes like, do you want me to fire you? And you were like, uh huh. That's the that's the idea. Uh-huh. And, uh, I don't. I, I think that like it was almost like the meeting got interrupted, or maybe I got fired, like pulled out of the meeting to actually be fired. One, it went one something like that. But basically, <laughs> you know, before I was fired, this guy's like, oh, oh, I see. Like there, there was this recognition that it totally would make sense that you'd want to be fired. You know what I mean? Was like, right. oh, do you want to be fired? Oh, is that what you're doing? Oh, okay, I get it. Fine, yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it so, does make sense. You know. I want to be fired. I want to collect unemployment. I had to do that once. We've all yeah. had to do that, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, and uh, it, it's it. That's what a smart person does. Smart person either has a job to go to before they leave their current job, or they make sure they're over the threshold to qualify for unemployment. And yeah. I think, I mean, back in the day, it wasn't much of a threshold. You had to be at a job like three months, maybe six months. Something like six that. Six months, I remember it being. Yeah, and Stuart. and then uh, six months in a day is when you, <laughs> you would get yourself shit canned. Wow. Okay. So, uh, telemarketers on Max or HBO. If it's somehow it's still called HBO in your house, it's on HBO, but it's really on Max, and it is um, a documentary long in the making. Uh, I love when they can dig up this old footage. They have this old footage to go back to and, and show you because not everybody was prescient enough to grab a video camera back in the day and, and shoot footage of stuff. So kudos to these guys for doing it. And um, it is admirable what they tried to do, this, this David and Goliath story and, and take down 
these fraternal orders of police and the PBA and all of these other organizations. I, I'd have to say the, the police organizations are the, are the main offender in this. Uh, in this documentary, you don't see CDG doing a lot of what I did with like the Vietnam Veterans of America or um, the 1st Marine Division, although there is a disabled veterans scam that ran in Chicago that they highlight in this in this documentary that is really sickening because we're talking about cops that were shot in the line of duty and ended up, for instance, paralyzed. And then these folks are calling on behalf of these cops and, and referring to these cops by name in order to get people to donate. And then these cops aren't getting a red cent. This one cop had to institute a class action lawsuit. And I'm not going to tell you how it turned out. Again, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but just the worst kind of carbuncles on the ass of society, these people who um, lived quite large. The the one guy, one of the brothers, I guess it was a Pash brother. Um, wasn't yeah, it two yeah. set of brothers? He had like a, a, a like Elmer Fudd. He had a mansion and a yacht. Here's something hilarious, because you know how they allude to um, that – so the one brother was Christian Rock, then the other brother was doing the uh, TV commercials as Jay Henry. And Jay Henry played the whiskey bar in Hoboken once, and both the brother and the both twins showed up in separate limos to the whiskey bar on Washington Street in Hoboken, New Jersey. Fancy. How and fancy. This is like around 2007 or something. Amazing. Just amazing. Again, the show's called Telemarketers. It's on Max right now. They dropped the third installment on Sunday, the third and final installment. So it's not going to take up a lot of your time. And it is a great New Jersey story and an underdog story. I like both of those things. Um, and it's a story of just how much people are allowed to get away with when they can invoke the police and I, I guarantee you it's still going on somewhere and speaking of still going on one of the more bizarre aspects of the story is they find out that some of the guys they work with who are now gone dead and buried their mm -hmm. voice was captured and sampled and used for these robocalls so the, the folks are getting <laughs> robocalls from these people who were dead oh, God. and <laughs> It's so fucked up when you think about it. Like, you're dead and buried, and you never gave them permission to use your voice, because why would you? Um, and who knows if they snuck it into the small print somewhere. And why would they? Because this is years before the advent of this technology, and nobody was thinking that we're going to use the recordings of these folks to continue uh, having them fundraise for us after they're dead. I mean, that seems like something that should be definitely illegal. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that is uh, dark. And worthy of a lawsuit, right? Don't you think? Yeah, worthy of a Philip Dick novel and a lawsuit. Oh, artificial intelligence. You know what? There's artificial intelligence right now listening to every lick you ever played on the guitar key. And Ugh. then when someone needs a guitar player, they're going to have artificial intelligence hartel. Oh they're going to have artificial hartel. <laughs> I'm fine with it. Hartel. Send out artificial Hartel, and I will I'll retire. And uh, I think it should be called Hartel. Hartificial. Hartificial. H with an H. Hartificial. Uh, 
By the way, what are you doing next? What are you up to these days? In the in the waning, it, wait, it's waning. Let me look outside. In the waning moments of this program, what what do you have going on? Let's plug some project of yours or uh, your talented, super talented wife, Tammy Faye. What are you guys up to? Oh man, that's a tough one. Yeah, um, a lot, right? You're always doing something. There's always something. I mean, going. I, I have a. <laughs> excuse me. I'm playing guitar um, in this like a uh, new wave slash classic rock um, cover band that plays a place called the Silver Lining. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, is that what it's called? Yeah, the Silver Lining Lounge piano bar on the Bowery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and then, but I and then I have a gig with uh, a Black Flag cover band called My Three Dads because the other three guys are dads. What do you and, know? Uh, we're playing Pinos in Highland Park. And I was just um, there in Pinos in Highland Park. What, when is that? I might have to go to that. I think it's, I want to say October 26th. It's last, it's the end of October. I know that. Who the fuck comes up with a Black Flag cover band? I mean, is that all you play? Is was, Black uh, Flag? You know, Chad. Okay, maybe. Tom Chad was, he was, um, he was in Dump Truck at a Point. He was in Blue Man Group a lot. But he was the replacement for um, bass player. He was the second bass player in Children in Adult Jails. Do you remember that band? On I, I do. Yeah. That's so. That's the like. That's his origin. It's from that same you know la- the label that AOD was on. Um, but anyway, um, that's Tom Shad, and then um, Paul, uh, the drummer. He played in one of the things called motel shootout shootout that played with inger like you know some versions of whatever we when we a guy i played with with inger a lot is the the drummer okay and and then the singer is a guy named aaron okay and and for some reason they decided to focus their energies on the catalog of black flag there's aren't there two black flags touring currently there's like Dez has a black flag and somebody else has a black flag. I mean, the black flag guys don't get along, right? There was, you know, well, there was Greg Ginn versus everyone else. So it was right. like there was, at one point, it was Greg Ginn and all different guys, including my high school friend, Mike Vallely, in the final iteration. Jesus, I might have found myself in black flag at some point. Yeah, it, it sounds uh, like. To anyone yeah but um but then and then the other thing called flag had every guy that ever was in black flag that was awesome <laughs> that's it you know like, yeah i don't know if des was in it i don't remember but i think he was uh, yeah i'm pretty sure he was okay so just... so uh, who are you are you greg ginn in this thing or des cadino which one oh, i'm greg ginn man okay all right uh, and what okay. what is the secret to the greg ginn guitar approach what what do you <laughs> His his guitar playing was always very angular, sort of imp- uh, improvised. I felt very uh, organic. I'm trying. To, I'm reaching for other ways to describe his guitar style. It's it's interesting because like um, the basic like the basic thing of sound is that that um, that treble booster thing I'm really into is his sound has a lot of something like that going on. Okay. Um, and then his his he just plays like perfect crunchy you know punk rock bar chords and when he's going for the leads. A lot of it is actually just like a kind of like a twisted Chuck Berry thing. Like, yeah, you know, like it's not that far away from something normal. And then other stuff, like if you're playing some of that, like my war era, he's very selective melodically, like very mm. like he picks very like these notes, like these weird choices he makes. He's yeah, it's uh, so, yeah, there's something minimalist about him. And then, and then also this like other total freedom part is uh, he's definitely worth worth studying. 
Well, you're always doing something interesting. See, so and what else? Uh, what's uh, what else is that? I know Tammy sold out uh, the thing that she's doing in October as well. That is uh, correct. Yes, and uh, is it Marianne Faithful? Is that what what she's doing? A Marianne Faithful show? Yes, she's yeah. doing some. Yes. Okay, and are you part of that, or are you off? You're doing your Black Flag. Thing. No, I'm doing my my um I'm doing my uh my piano bar lounge uh-huh. guitar. You're always busy, always busy. That's what I like. Always making money with that git fiddle somehow. Teaching over there at the guitar bar in Hoboken, and uh, otherwise showing the youngsters the joys of uh, learning guitar, the absolute joys of learning guitar. Um, we've got a few minutes left, and I know we've switched subjects entirely, but uh, I introduced you to this guy, Mr. Jimmy, who apparently now has joined the John Bonham Led Zeppelin tribute called Led Zepp again. He's playing Jimmy Page right. for these evenings. So he's hit the big time, right, in terms of guys that want to be Jimmy Page. And oh. there's a film coming out about him. There's a movie called Mr. Jimmy, a documentary all about this Japanese guy who quit his salaryman job and moved to Los Angeles and dedicated his life to becoming Jimmy Page. And I mean like physically and note for note uh, playing like Jimmy Page. And I'm somehow I'm fascinated by the story because when I discovered guitar, it was Jimmy Page that got me into it. And I wanted to be Jimmy Page, but I, I couldn't have ever, no one, I think, could have ever taken it to the extremes that this guy did. Um, and, and in the film, there's a night when Jimmy Page shows up to see this guy play and, and sort of gives him the okay to continue doing this and to devote his life to it. Um, and I guess I'm, I, I, this is a long about, this is a roundabout way of asking you if you would go see this film with me, Keith. I'd love to. I don't know who else to, who would go see this thing, but uh, what do you what do you think of this guy's story? Because uh, the last time you and I got together and played, I made you watch. I forced you to watch. Yeah, one of one of these uh, videos of him. It's it's weird because it's like I can I can get obsessed with stuff. You know what I mean? Like it, like that whole thing of like memorizing like every little detail. Right. I have enough of that in me to be a little bit disturbed by like too much more than me of that. Right. Yes. But, um, so it's kind of like when you said like, you see his story, it's like, I know his story. He's just obsessed. Like he's just nuts. I mean, the guy, you know what this guy did for a living? He sold kimonos. Yeah. That's, that's what he did for a living. And, and now he's I'm sure making a damn good living. It's Jason Bonham after all pretending to be jimmy page and this is beyond a tribute to me this is not like a tribute band this is a guy who has made it his life's work to uh give people the experience of jimmy page in his prime because jimmy page now looks like the queen of england he's an old guy right and uh so you know if you it's as close as you're gonna get if you squint you could sort of tell yourself you're seeing jimmy page in his prime and I didn't. In 1977, when I saw Jimmy Page, he was a heroin addict. He was hardcore into heroin, and he weighed all of 90 pounds. I'm not sure if that was his prime, Keith. I'm just saying. You know, hard you know. to say. Yeah, hard, to, very hard to say. So we're, we're going to find a uh, screening of Mr. Jimmy somewhere because Lord knows how long it's going to take to come to streaming. 
you know, uh, I, I, the, the Led Zeppelin documentary that's floating around out there, it's called Becoming Led Zeppelin. It's about their gathering and their forming in their first two years. Um, apparently went back to be worked upon. I mean, they, they showed this thing a year and a half, two years ago. They showed it somewhere and then quickly removed it. And I, and I think the band got their hands on it and they're monkeying with it now. So God knows if we'll ever see that. So this is as close as we're going to get is what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, anything else you want to tell us about in the two minutes that we have left? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm good. You're good. You're good. Uh, we went to see Oppenheimer, by the way. And so any lasting thoughts on Oppenheimer after the fact? Has it stuck with you? Do you remember oh, any of it? Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Stuck okay. with me. Absolutely. Okay. All right. I uh, I don't think I liked it as much as you did, unfortunately. Did you see Barbie yet? No. Okay. Um, Tammy went to see it. She she didn't care for it. Really? She's seen well. She did. Seen it to her, it just sounded like it wasn't as funny the way it was supposed to be for her. But okay. she's, she's not generous with her opinion about uh, comedy stuff. Like you know. Yeah, I hear you. Well, so, she has good taste, so maybe she's right about this one. Maybe I don't need to see Barbie. It has saying. happened. All right. Well, it's always good to talk to you. When are we gonna get together and uh, play again? Let me put you on the spot. Um, uh, I don't know, man. You tell me. Um, it's week by week, um, fly by night. All right. Well, I'm, I'm next a... week. I think I'm free. Okay. Um, Let's figure it out because my birthday is next week. It might be a nice birthday gift. Oh. Get together. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, have a great Labor Day weekend. And always good to have you as a guest. And I'm grateful you're no longer calling people and getting money out of them. Yeah. Thanks. I get their scams going, man. All right, I w- I'm going to play a Black Flag song as we go out, but I only have one, and, and and I'm really sorry about that because we've all heard this one 15 million times, but what can you do? It's still a great song. A little bit of TV Party. Are you guys going to cover TV Party? We No, we, we almost – we played mostly pre-Rollins. Okay, all right. With wow. some, you know, notable exceptions, but mostly pre-Rollins. Oh, wow. Okay, that's really being specific. What do you know? All right. Yep. Very decline of Western civilization style flag. All right. There you go. Keith Hartel. Thanks again, Keith. Good to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Always take a pleasure. That'll do it for this uh, live aerial view. And uh, next week, it'll probably be an aerial view archive again. Don't forget on uh, Wednesdays. Uh, Wednesdays. Uh, what the hell am I saying? Sundays. You've got the Hound Howl at 3 p.m. And Crash of the Party. Mark and Miriam, doo-wop, chop shop of the air at 5 p.m. Aerial View will be heard again on Tuesday. The show will replay, and then in just a little bit, it'll become a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, that ought to do it. Watch Telemarketers on Max. <laughs>